You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Love that little intro video, you know. Rings of Power stole it from us, in case you're watching Rings of Power on Amazon. No, just joking. It's good to see you guys this morning. I remember when um, HDTVs came out. Remember that? High definition recording, high definition shooting, crystal clear picture, and everybody was super excited about it, except for one group of people. I remember hearing that the people who hated HD the most were newscasters. Seriously, you laugh. Newscasters, you think the people who would be most excited about this were the least excited about it, and they hated it. Here's why. Because all of a sudden, the makeup that they had typically used was no longer sufficient. True story. We could see their faces in stunning clarity, and every newscaster instantly got more self-conscious because all of a sudden that pimple I had in seventh grade that left a scar that nobody knew about blazed forth in stunning, unavoidable clarity. I wonder how many of us spend our lives looking for better spiritual makeup. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that the story? This is our second week in a six-week teaching series through the life of David. Last week, in case you're joining us, Pastor Micah did a great job kicking things off by setting up this broken and beloved king, David, in his context. For us, David would be like somebody who's simultaneously simultaneously the leading Christian musician of his day, the most charismatic preacher of his day, the most compelling fashion icon, the greatest military tactician, the highest paid leadership coach, and the best-selling author all rolled into one. Scripture offers us this HD scarred picture very intentionally. Here's what I love about that. David's life is a real picture of a real person with real problems and real victories. Scripture does not whitewash this guy. David had a lot of issues from personal stuff to stuff with God, stuff with his family, stuff with his people. And Scripture doesn't sugarcoat any of it. God's Word brings it out in high def for us all to see. It's unavoidable. It's unignorable. We have to see it. David's life seems intentionally written to test the limits of God's grace and to prove the strength of God's love. Personally, um, David's narrative, the whole sweeping narrative, is a really tough one for me. Am I allowed to say that? Like, I don't, I don't like reading it. I know that sounds odd for like a pastor to say, but like it's hard to, to, to take this picture of David because he's just so real, like uncomfortably real. And David presents us with this picture of a God who loves us as we are, not as we should be. And that takes a lot of faith, man. Like, it's a messy picture. 
And sometimes it's hard to believe in a God that's that gracious. Honestly. That's just me. But that's our God. So where we're going to be this morning is actually a high point for David. You can make the argument that this is the only scene in his life without a discernible blemish. A shepherd boy squaring off against a soldier. But before we get to the text, which we will be in 1 Samuel 17, um, I think it's wise to give us a quick word um, just about how we should approach Old Testament stories in general, particularly things like David and Goliath, where we'll be. So um, a story... This story, David and Goliath, I think, is ripe for misinterpretation. And here's what I mean. Um, The other day, uh, I sat home and um, I watched Invincible, that great football movie. Okay, I don't care if you don't like it. It's an awesome movie. It's great. And I was sitting there just by myself watching this awesome football movie. Like, Rudy is another great one. These classic movies that, like, come up in football season for me. And I'm sitting there, and even though I never made it past flag football in third grade Greentown, I'm sitting there on my couch with my kettle-cooked potato chips on my lap. And in that moment, I am Mark Wahlberg, like, tearing through linebackers, ripping down the field. Have you ever noticed that when we watch movies like our pride kind of unconsciously makes us the hero. (laughs) So here's the corrective. God's word is written with a hero in view, but it is never me. (laughs) If you're the hero of anything in scripture, you're reading it wrong. (laughs) We should resist the urge to be so self-centered, to copy-paste David's life over mine and go, yeah, you know, David had a giant that he was standing in front of, and I've got this tough conversation at work, and so I'm going to pick up the stones of faith and slay the giants of my fear, that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, that's just bad Bible study, and it's really corny. The Bible is never corny. We aren't given David and Goliath so you can learn principles to slay the giants of your fear. We are not the center of the biblical narrative. So how should we avoid that danger? Great question. Glad you asked. Four quick tips for reading Old Testament narratives. And this is going to be academic for about five minutes, but I want to do this so that we can position ourselves right to know how to approach the Old Testament. Because I don't think a lot of us really know what to do with these stories. We kind of like put them up at the ramp and like maybe the little kids can just learn to be brave if they, if they read David and Goliath and that'll be good. We need a little more than that. So principle number one, we need to know Old Testament narratives don't directly teach doctrine. They illustrate doctrine. Now hold on. Yes, they do teach doctrine, but they don't do it directly. So Old Testament stories, no matter where you are in the Old Testament, They usually deal with God's interaction with his creation, mostly us. And we rarely get instructions on what we're supposed to do with it. No, like, you know, at the end of David and Goliath, now, church, go do this. We don't get that. We don't get what we get in Paul, where it's this list of commands. We don't get next steps. All we get is this led to this, led to this, led to this. And not knowing what else to do, we sort of unconsciously put ourselves in the place of the main character. And so here's a really practical tip for those of you that want to love the Old Testament more. When reading Old Testament narratives, the best question, the first question, is not, what does this mean for me? The first question is, what does God want to show me about him? 
Every Old Testament story, every one of them, is a revelation of something from God that he wants to show us. Old Testament stories illustrate doctrine. They are theology lived out, and we get a front row seat. So that's principle number one for approaching the Old Testament. Number two, we need to understand there is a big difference between what the Old Testament records and what the Old Testament endorses. This is especially true in the life of David. Last week, Micah showed us that, just overviewing David's life, that David's life is a train wreck. The guy is an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's an absentee father. He's a calculating leader. You don't want this guy in your neighborhood. You don't want this guy hanging with your family. You don't want this guy leading and teaching in your church. And But as we go through the life of David, a common objection is like, how is this guy still called a man after God's own heart? You would deny him for church membership. (laughs) And so the response has to be, there is a big difference between what the Old Testament records and what the Old Testament endorses. Scripture never endorses David's adultery with, which is basically rape of, Bathsheba. Never endorses his subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. Never endorses his terrible parenting or his calculating leadership. These scenes, when you string them together, create a larger picture, a larger narrative arc. They're meant to teach us something, something that goes way beyond David himself. Scripture records these events, never endorses them, because it's endorsing someone else. Point number three. God is always the hero, and his glory is always the goal. God is always the hero, and his glory is always the goal. We know more about David's life than almost anybody else in the Bible. We're given a front row seat to his teenage years and his twilight years. We know his friends, and we know his enemies. We ride the high points and the low points. Nothing is held back. Nothing is suppressed. Nothing is edited We get David in his high-def rawness, the good, the bad, and the really ugly. Why? To point to a better hero. We're given David's life so we can see a man who is broken and beloved by a God who is good and gracious. God is always the hero. His glory is always the goal. Last principle, and then we're going to get to the text. Everything... In the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything points to Jesus. I think we forget this, that from Genesis 1 to the very last word of Revelation, everything points to Jesus. He is this common thread that all throughout the Old Testament is foreshadowed and is looked forward to, and then he arrives in the Gospels, and then the rest of the New Testament looks back and says, this is now how you live with Jesus as your Savior. The whole Bible is built around him, and so when we look in the Old Testament, we have to look with eyes that look forward to this one-day Messiah who will come. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So with all that, let's get to the text. 1 Samuel 17. If you're not there already, you can turn there, flip there, scroll there, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. 1 Samuel 17. We're just going to look in verses 1 through 3. We're going to get all these weird place names out of the way. Here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Sukkot and Azekah, 
in Ephes Damim. You guys know where all those are, right? We're good? Okay, let's just skip on. No, we'll come back. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line against the battle of the Philistines. And the Philistines took or stood on the mountain on one side. Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So a couple questions. Who are the Philistines? Why are they against God's people? And where is all this going down? So the Philistines are an ancient group of people, about 25,000 strong at this point in history, who most likely had come down from Greece and settled in five city-states in what's now the West Bank. They were agrarian people. They were farmers. They worshipped ancient fertility gods, most of which were female. Economically, though, the Philistines were brilliant. They designed these five city-states with incredible detail. As farmers, they were olive farmers. They had over 200 olive installations all around their kingdom. They were into mead and wine and other fermented drinks. Additionally, more to the point of this story, they were metal workers. File that away for a minute. All that to say, they were populous, they were rich, and they were strong. They were kind of the big dog on the porch of the ancient world. And so when these new neighbors start moving in, these former slaves who had come up from Egypt, who were supposedly led by their god, okay, Philistines are kind of going, hey, wait a second. Uh, think about it like a border dispute maybe in your own neighborhood. Anybody ever have one of those? We're like, I don't know, for like the last 10 years you've been mowing like that side of the thing and then you realize the new neighbor comes in and he goes, hey, that's actually my yard and those trees belong to me. He's going to hire a surveyor. They come in and oh my gosh, those are his trees. That's his yard, huh? Same thing here, only with horses and chariots and swords, and maybe a little more attitude, no HOA to interfere. <laughs> so these two armies line up across the valley from each other in what's called the Valley of Elah. It looks like this. Now, what this picture's showing is what the Philistines would have seen. Okay, this is looking up this way, and that mountain kind of over in the distance, kind of up and to the left, that's where the Israelite army would have been, and that little grove of trees in the middle. Hmm, something's about to happen there. I think you know what it might be. Philistines camped on the south. This is their view. Israel camped on the north, both with a mountain at their backs, neither with an easy way out. So how is this going to go. Cue the imperial march from Star Wars. Verse 4. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's about nine feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and his weight, or the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. We'll talk about that. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Okay, first thing you would have noticed is his shield. It's held by an armor-bearer. It's made of heavy bronze, covering Goliath's whole body. This is like some dude holding a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. Inches thick. But the bronze didn't stop there. His helmet, it's easy just to kind of imagine how big that would have been. His chain mail, fashioned from several hundred pieces of bronze plates connected together, kind of looked like fish scales. The text says it weighs 5,000 shekels. That's a 125-pound shirt. 
It's kind of fascinating to think that one piece of Goliath's armor weighed about as much as David might have. Javelin slung across his back, also bronze. Goliath holds up a spear roughly as thick as that 4 by 4 post that probably holds up your mailbox. 12 feet long, tipped with a 16 and a half pound head made of iron, a metal that the Philistines had monopolized and was unavailable to the Israelites. So the dude is basically a walking tank. He had to feel and look invincible. So what's he say? And here is the lesson in ancient diplomacy. Verse 8. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Israel and, or Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Confident in his man-made protection, he stokes the sleeping embers of the Israelite army. Let's see this for what this is. This is a taunt speech. This is not a negotiation This is come at me, bro, with all the firepower to back it up. With the effect that in verse 11, two words, dismayed, greatly afraid. So that's the stage. This is scene one. Scene two, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. Same Bethlehem, by the way named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Aminadab, the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves. Carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token of them. You can feel the flow kind of shift a little bit, right? Now David, from Bethlehem, the youngest, tending sheep. We're lifted from the battlefield to this pastoral meadow. And what's David doing? Nothing that initially appears very important, just basically doing DoorDash for his brothers. He's shepherding sheep, which I think is very interesting. Maybe that's a little bit of an allusion to what's in his future. Fascinating to think that Moses also was a shepherd for 40 years before he had his command from the Lord. But even at a distance, Goliath's challenge is enough to interrupt David and his older brothers. Look down to verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. There's that word again. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel. 
And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Funny what incentivizes people, isn't it? And David said, now watch this, to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Then he should defy the armies of the living God. And right there, can't you feel like something's kind of brewing a little bit? The soldiers, an army in, intimidated. David sees a God's glory that's offended. Soldiers are incentivized by this like financial remuneration. David is motivated by this some other eternal proclamation. They see this potential champion differently. The soldiers just say, well, he's the one who kills him. Verse 25. David's lens is wider. He calls the potential victor the one who takes away the reproach from Israel. Very different perspective. What's happening here? David's faith is so beautiful so childlike. He's saying, I'm not okay that God's name is profaned. That's what's bothering me. And that turns out is motivation enough. Here's the point for us. Often, the greatest fight is not the battle itself. The greatest fight is what you see. Not the main point of this narrative, but another sub-point worth asking. What bothers you? What motivates you? Am I more bothered when I look bad or when God looks bad? Whose reputation am I more eager to advance and restore? God's or my own? Verse 31, though. So David says... I think there might be a play here. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Saul said to him, this is great, you're not able to fight the Philistine. You're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. As if David could say, you know, Saul, with your eyes, I understand how you could draw that conclusion. But now David gets theological in verse 34. David says to Saul, your servant, meaning himself, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him and I delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. Now watch this theological bombshell. David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Now, we could stop there and be done. What's David doing? 
He's taking everything he already knows about God, everything he's already seen, everything that God's already shown him about himself, and he's saying, that same God here. The God I serve has always been faithful, so he will be faithful. The God I serve always comes through, so he will come through. He doesn't change. It's not in his character. It's not who he is. He doesn't leave. That's not him. He has been faithful, so he will be faithful. Here's the statement. Future confidence rests on past provision. Future confidence rests on past provision. This is a near constant theme for David. Psalm 61, 1 through 3. Take a look at this. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I for you have been my refuge. A strong tower against the enemy. Did you hear it? You will because you have. Psalm 31, verse 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have delivered me, or have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Did you catch it again? You will because you have. Psalm 71, exact same thing. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Again, you will because you have. What's David doing? What's he drawing from? What's he trying to get us to understand? He's trying to prevent this like short-sighted spiritual amnesia that most of us, maybe just me, struggle with. We look here and we see here. We get so nervous and everything that's right here, forgetting that God is here. And he will because he has. This is a spiritual rearview mirror that when facing fear reminds us of what God has done so that we will be confident of what he can do and will do. The same God that did that then is the same God that will do this. He will because he has. But that's really hard, isn't it? I feel that. Just a lot in my life. I wonder a lot when my back's up against the wall, when I feel afraid, when I don't know what the Lord is going to do or how he's going to come through, because I can't see a way out. My back's up against a mountain. Isn't it good to know in those moments that the same God who's working in this obscure story that most of us have colored a children's coloring book at one point in our life. Same God that's there is the same God who is here. This is who our God is, and this is what he does. So up walks David the shepherd boy with an army of faithless men behind him and a godless giant in front of him, childishly, innocently, naively going, guys, what is the big deal? What have you forgotten? What can you no longer see? We're Red Sea people, right? We're free from Egypt people, right? 
We are walk through on dry land people, right? Same God, right? He will because he has. So what happens? Scene three. Before we get to the climax of this little narrative, because you know how it ends up, the plot kind of trips up on itself to what initially seems like this small little weird detail. It's like a little mini scene. And it seems trivial, but it's actually really important. Verse 38. This is kind of like the cutest part of the story. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a chain of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. David said to Saul, I can't go with these. (laughs) I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Why this little pull-off? Don't miss what David says. I have not tested them. King, I know you're trying to help me out. I appreciate the gesture. I don't have any experience with this. I've not tested this. I don't even know what this is supposed to do. I don't have any experience with this. I don't know this. I appreciate the gesture, King, but the assurance that you have is not the same as the assurance that I have. And the Philistine, verse 41, moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And so the poem-writing Shepherd boy faces the seasoned man of war, and now comes the smack talk. Verse 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. That's a way of saying he was a pretty boy. You can look it up, it's true. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. And then here's the theological bombshell part two. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Do you hear the theology underneath there? Do you hear what David is doing? Do you hear how he's thinking? This is a window into the doctrine that's like simmering just below the surface. Sounds an awful lot like 2 Kings 6.16. Just listen, I'll read this. Another time in Israel's history. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Sounds an awful lot like 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7. Again, just listen to this. It's the same kind of a deal. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria or the horde that's with him. Why? For there are more with us than with them. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the arm of the Lord of our God to help us and to fight our battles. Skipping way forward, which we'll come back to in just a second. 2 Corinthians 10, same kind of an idea. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Skipping even further forward, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, church, take up the whole armor of God that may, you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Do you see the picture coming into focus? You see the lens tightening up a little bit. Line all of those things up and they're building the case that then as, then as now, God's enemies don't fare well against him. No matter how they're armed or how they're prepared, no matter what they bring to the fight or what they say or how they seem, when God moves to defend those he loves, there's no power, pressure, or person that can stop him. Hold on to that, because we're going to come back to it in just a second. But back to David, because that pressure cooker is about to explode. <laughs> and so what follows is just this terse, quick series of staccato verbs that move the action along at an incredibly alarming pace. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand into his bag, he took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. What a marvelous detail. And he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So where do we go from here? Remember, the first question is not, what does this mean for me? Got to resist that. The first question must be, what does God want to show me about him? And just to connect the dots, here it is. God rescues his people. Super simple. Super hard to believe. But that's the point of David and Goliath. God rescues his people. Here are his people in trouble, facing an enemy they can't conquer, and out of love for them, God steps in. And some of you can already see where this is pointing. Well, let's slow down because it gets even better. How does God rescue his people? How does he do that? How does God provide the rescue? Answer, his way. <laughs> Why do you think the text goes to such great lengths to tell us that Goliath has a sword and David doesn't? Why are we supposed to know that the Philistines are this incredibly trained army Israel isn't? What theological value could there possibly be in knowing that David is just a shepherd boy and Goliath is a seasoned soldier? Simple. When God chooses to rescue his people, he does it in a way that often doesn't make sense. 
He does it his way. God rescues his people his way. But let's push this like one step further. Why does God do that? Why? Answer, for his own glory. God rescues his people his way for his own glory. Why did Saul, this like self-appointed, self-important king, shrink back in fear where David seems like naively confident? Why is the army hiding behind the hill and David just like trots out there? What are we supposed to see in David's oversimplified, naive trust in God that in rescuing his people his way, God moves so that they can know that he is God and they are not? For his glory, God rescues his people his way for his glory. Now, having established all of that, let's take all of this and follow the connecting thread all the way through to 2022 North Canton. If it's true that God rescues his people, his way, for his glory, now comes the question, what in the world am I even supposed to do with that? Because I don't think many of you have been called out to a back alley somewhere to like pound a stone into somebody's forehead. I don't think that's true. If so, you should come talk to me afterward. We should redirect that idea. I don't think many of us can copy-paste this experience onto our own. So let's leave Goliath's severed head on the battlefield for a second, and I want to drop into a letter that Paul wrote to a church hundreds of years later. And tell me if you can't hear the same flow of thought in these verses. This comes from Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Stop there. You are hopeless. I was hopeless. The enemy that I faced was something I could not get over on my own. I was as good as dead. I might as well be gone, written off. I had no hope. You were dead and the trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God, probably the two best verse, words in the entire Bible. But God. Here's me, and then... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, what did he do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He like interrupts himself to say that. It's great. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the grace of God not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Do you hear the common thought from 1 Samuel 17 in Ephesians chapter 2? David and Goliath, rooted as it is in actual history, is a servant to the larger story of the gospel. David and Goliath are a precursor, an appetizer, a foreshadowing for the larger story of redemption. How? Here are the common points. We were dead. We had no hope. Sin was staring me down and I had nowhere to go. That's my story. 
to but God. God rescues his people. Three, he rescues his people his way. He sent Jesus to defeat sin so that I would not have to live under its threat any longer and I could be fearless and free. He rescues his people his way for his glory. I can't boast. I have nothing to do with it. So I want to wrap up by asking three questions. First off, do you know that you're vulnerable? Do you know you have a need, that you need to be rescued? Do you know that? I think it's interesting in this story, it never tells us that David was not vulnerable. We get this, like, David's very confident going into this, and we're watching this whole thing unfold. Like, Dude, you're about to get smoked. <laughs> Do you know that you're vulnerable, or are you still trying to be perfect? Are you still trying to be, like, hard on the outside? Do you know you have a need that you need to be rescued from? Second question, what are you counting on for rescue? It's an interesting thought. I wonder how you'd answer this question. If you reach the end of your life and you're 51% good, 49% bad, then what? You good enough to get into heaven? No. <laughs> you can't be perfect on your own. You can't rescue yourself. That's the most humiliating thing to admit, but it's also the most freeing thing to admit, that I am with my back against a mountain. I can't do anything. If God doesn't show up, I'm done. How good is good enough? Here's the last question. Are you vulnerable? What are you counting on for rescue? And the very last question. Have you accepted and recognized God's rescue that he's already provided in Christ? That's all this is. This is a foreshadowing of the true story that's yet to come. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That our sins would not be counted against us. This is way more than how to have confident conversations at work. <laughs> this is way more than just like, well, I got a big meeting coming up. Or, this is way more than that. David and Goliath is this declaration that God's provision is enough, that God rescues his people his way for his glory, period. Do you know that? The song that we're going to sing, which is really intentionally because it's a declaration. It just says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. There is no hope outside of Christ. And I know that's like Debbie Downer for the morning. There is no hope outside of Christ. You can put off that battlefield all you want. There is no hope outside of Christ. I wonder, do you know him? Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for what you have done. God, we praise you that you're a God that doesn't shrink back from a fight. Every fight you fight, you win. We say thank you for this testimony, this story, this dramatization of your sufficiency in the life of a young shepherd boy. Lord, I can't help but think that as we look at the sin in our own life, we look at our lostness, we feel so overwhelmed, we feel so incapable, we feel so afraid. 
Lord, help us to glory in your provision of Christ. That you are enough. You have made a way. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.